Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, Going Nuclear, the Benefits of Nuclear Regulatory Reform. Please welcome Jack Spencer, Senior Research Fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment. Welcome, everyone, to the Heritage Foundation. Thank you for taking some time to be with us today. We have a great program planned for you. Um, We're going to have a conversation about nuclear energy and how some regulatory reforms could really set the stage for, and I'm going to say it, a nuclear renaissance. Our initial conversation will last about 35 minutes or so, and then we're going to open up for audience questions. So to quickly set the stage, I want to paint a timeline. At one, at one end of this timeline is Admiral Rickover getting the go-ahead to build the Nautilus, America's first nuclear submarine. At the other end of that timeline, I want you to think about Vogel, the Vogel 3 reactor, the most recent reactor to come online. Congress authorized the Nautilus in 1951, and it set sail four short years later in 1955. Compare this to Vogel, which commenced in 2006 with an application for an early site permit and started construction in 2009 and began producing energy this year. So depending on how you characterize the start date, we're talking 14 to 17 years. Now, while these experiences aren't exactly apples to apples, They do, I think, provide interesting bookends for us to consider as we discuss nuclear regulation. It's even more so the case when we consider that our oldest operating reactors today were on similar timelines to that original naval reactor. So given this context, at the end of our discussion today, I hope we have a sense of where we are, how we got here, and where we want to go. We want to explore what happened between then and now from a regulatory standpoint, what are some of the historical turning points that led us to where we are? And is, this, is it a matter of going back to the future, or do we need an entirely new approach? We have two outstanding guests to walk us through this complicated discussion today. In no, no particular order, joining us today is Craig Piercy, CEO of the American Nuclear Society, and Jeff Merrifield, formerly with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and currently a partner with Pillsbury Law. I'd like to invite the both of, both of you gentlemen up to the stage. Thank you. Thank you for being here. So, before we get started, just to ease into things, let's hear, um, I'd like to hear more about what each of you do. So, Craig, tell us a little bit about ANS and maybe what you do there. Sure. So uh, ANS is, serves as the professional society for the nuclear discipline. So we, uh, we support our 10,000 members who are from utilities, national laboratories, universities, suppliers, even government agencies. Um, we advance the science through our technical journals. We provide uh, uh, professional development opportunities. We provide news to both the public and the community. Uh, we host a dozen meetings a year uh, with different, we have two large meetings a year, and we, we do topical meetings with different uh, subsets of the nuclear technology community. So we, we're, not a, we're not a lobbying organization. We're not, a, we're not an industry trade association. We represent the, the men and women of the field. And Jeff, how do you sort of interact with nuclear policy? At Pillsbury. Yeah, so Pillsbury is a 700-person law firm. Our energy group is the oldest and largest nuclear law practice in the world. We've been around about 55 years. Um, Our focus is fission, both the current fleet. Um, I'm substantially involved in advanced reactors. We represent many of them. Um, We also have the world's first leading uh, fusion energy practice, so I represent the Fusion Industry Association on their efforts. And finally, we've had a significant focus in the last several years on hydrogen. We were one of the first firms to establish a hydrogen practice, uh, and we deal with uh, many of the different colors of hydrogen, although I don't like that term. Um, we're principally focused on, on carbon-free generation of hydrogen. Very good. Now, remember, we're going to do Q&A, so I know people are going to have questions about hydrogen. Everyone wants to know about hydrogen. We maybe will get into a bit. If not, we have an expert here. 
To get started, I want to sort of, sort of establish a common basis of information that we can all move from. Uh, like, what is nuclear regulation? A lot of us who are in this discussion, this policy debate, we talk about needing more or less regulation. But I don't know that many people really know what, what that even means. Like, what is, who does the regulating? Who gets regulated? How is it paid for? Um, one of the things that I think is interesting is there's a um, certainly a public sector, the NRC, EPA, has a role. But there's also a private sector piece of regulation in the nuclear industry. So, um, Jeff, given your experience, maybe you could talk a minute about what we meet, what nuclear regulation is. Yeah. Um, especially you know from the NRC perspective and whatever. And then Craig, maybe you can talk a little bit about how the industry self-regulates or the role of safety culture within the industry that both is explicit regulation, but also there's implicit regulatory um, forces at, at play. So the, the, the NRC was, was, its predecessor was the Atomic Energy Commission, which was um, really established after World War II to manage our, our, nuclear, our nuclear labs, the, 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 what are now the DOE labs, and all civilian and military uses of, of the use of radioactive materials and the development of power. So as you mentioned, Hyman Rickover in the early days, all of that was in, within the agency. Um, by 1975, under the, under the Nixon administration, there was a, recognized that there was a, a little bit of a challenge there. You had the promoter of nuclear energy and the regulator in, in the same house. So in that year, uh, you had the Energy Reorganization Act, which effectively split the two apart. You had an organization which ultimately became the Department of Energy and the National Labs. The other part was the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Um, that commission kept the commission function, so there are five presidentially appointed commissioners. I was one of them, and they're responsible for so overseeing the agency. Um, today, the NRC has about 3,000 personnel, about a billion-dollar budget, and they're responsible for overseeing all civilian uses of radioactive materials. They have sole authority over the 94 operating nuclear power plants uh, and any of the nuclear power plants that we're talking about today that will be developed. Um, the NRC also regulates other radiological uses of material, including medical, industrial, and other um, isotopes. We have them in our lives. We don't even think about them. Every uh, radar, every uh, smoke detector around generally is an NRC generally licensed device. Most of those other authorities, the non-reactor, can be devolved to the agreement states. Uh, these there are today, I think, almost 40 of the states have chosen to take those authorities, and, and they focus on, on those activities. Um, at all 94 reactors, there are resident inspectors, so full-time NRC folks who have access to those nuclear reactors on a 24-7 basis, uh, and, and they provide the ability to make sure that those reactors are operating safely. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about licensing, because I know you want to get more into more detail on that, and so I'll hold. Um, Craig, I don't know if you want to talk about IMPO and, and some of their activities, because that's the other yeah, private part yeah. that, that Jack was uh, Yeah, I think, they're, they're, I think you, you, obviously you covered NRC really well, right? There are a couple of other pieces that fit into it, right? First, there is the, the Environmental Protection Agency, which... Um, uh, creates public protection standards that the NRC regulates to. Right. Um, there is um, um, what I'll call a multi-agency non-proliferation regime that uh, within the federal government, uh, the NNSA, the State Department, that um, that also have a role in in uh, regulating uh, exports of technology. Um, but the the one I think that's it, it, important to understand in terms of our operating fleet is the Institute for Nuclear Power Operations, or IMPO. Um, and that is a, a, an industry-supported organization, non-governmental, uh, created after the Three Mile Island incident um, that helps uh, support reactor operators in training and uh, in, in creating the, the sort of safety culture that is, uh, that is necessary to run a plant, uh, uh, you know, efficiently and safely. And, you know, they keep score. They have a scoreboard, right? They, they meet, you know, the utilities go there often, and, and, and everyone knows who's doing well and who's not doing well. So it, it, I think in many ways is probably an, an outgrowth of the excellence that Rickover brought to the naval nuclear industry. There are a lot of ex-Navy people that work within IMPO. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it, there is an important sort of private sector uh, uh, companion to the work that, that NRC does. Yeah, just to add one more thing. A lot of people don't know about IMPO because it is – 
it is private, it is, has a significant amount of Navy, uh, ex-Navy influence. Um, there is a connection between those inspection activities and the insurance rates that the utilities pay. So there is a, there is a forcing function there and an incentive. All the U.S. In- utilities are members of IMPO. Um, there is a parallel organization internationally that was created after the Chernobyl accident called WANO. Um, that incorporates all of the operators of nuclear power plants around the world, including some in countries that we don't have relations with, including Iran. But it's really an effort to try to create a framework of, of self-regulation beyond the regulations imposed by the, by the national regulator, in, in this case, the NRC. I think one of the interesting things about the in-post story is if you look at um, the post-Three Mile Island nuclear world, uh, combined with the introduction of, uh, of, of energy markets, that it was through the information exchange in IMPO that allowed the great efficiencies that we see across the nuclear fleet um, come to fruition, and that IMPO has the regulatory piece, but also it's a great organization that the industry shares best practices through that yields both good e- economics and really safe operations. Yeah, and I think one of the things, uh, you know, you sort of look back at history, back in that timeline post Three Mile Island, nuclear power plants did not operate very efficiently. Um, There were a lot of shutdowns. Performance wasn't what it needed to be. Fuel performance was a problem because of leaking. You know, they were in the 70% or so capacity factor uh, in some years, you know, in in the 60s. Today, consistently for a decade, the U.S. nuclear industry has operated at around a 94% capacity factor. It is world-leading. It leads every other single energy resource in the United States. Coal, gas, wind, solar, nothing comes close to nuclear in terms of its capacity. Mm-hmm. Very important, resilient, and reliable resource for energy production. And age of the reactors is not an indicator of efficiency or lack thereof. I was looking this morning at some numbers and literally our oldest operating reactor today has a capacity factor last year of 96%, right. which is pretty amazing. Well, that's a, that's a function of continued investment. It is. It's a function of continued investment, and I think investment in, in, um, in operations, logistics, and workforce, right? So you, know, you look at nuclear plants, they tend to operate sort of in, in you know, 12 to 18 month cycles. Um, their outages are planned in the spring and fall. Um, those outages are planned in many ways like an extended F1 pit stop, right? Everything is, is uh, choreographed before they go in and do it. Um, you know, there's a high level of operational efficiency, and so they get those pl- plants down, fixed, refueled, back online um, in very short order. And, uh, and it's, I think, you know... Tw- you, 20, 25 to 35 days. 25 roughly. to 35 days, yeah. to, uh, um, but literally... You have, um, uh, again, 92, I think 92, 93, 94% across the board, and these are 50-year-old plants, right, that have, that have essentially been um, um, continuously retrofitted over time. So, I mean, it's an incredible operational achievement. Well, I, you know, I always tell people it's sort of like the military, right? The, you know, the B-52 aircraft that, that are still flying and are a mainstay of the U.S. Air Force were manufactured before anyone in this audience was 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 pretty much born, and so, um, and those will remain a main uh, airframe for the U.S. Air Force for decades to come because they put in new avionics, new engines. They basically rebuild them, and that's that's a similar story to the U.S. nuclear fleet. Many of the parts and pieces in these reactors, some of which are fifty years old, are completely new and have been updated with modern modern standards. So, when you look at nuclear regulation, if we could put it in to two buckets, maybe there is. Um, the regulation of the, the operations of existing plants, and then there's the whole regulatory process for building new plants, even of, the, of similar technology, not to even mention new advanced technologies. So think, thinking of that, and then applying the context that I mentioned at the beginning, there's this time arc from Rickover and the Nautilus to Vogel. And there's been an evolution of regulation in nuclear, and that evolution seems to have allowed existing nuclear to become more successful, but new nuclear, very difficult. So I'm wondering if, um, if we could talk about that for, for a few minutes. One, and Jeff, you started to, to, to talk about this, but maybe could you walk us through the evolution you know, from the AEC to the NRC slash DOE to um, Three Mile Island, maybe the role that NEPA played in there, um, 
And then you have the early 90s reforms that gave us the COLs and the, um, the early site permit. And just to, to, you don't need to go into a lot of detail, but give folks sort of an idea of the evolution of that. So let me, boy, you've got a lot there on the plate. Um, so let me start with a punchline first. I do think that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission can use its existing structures to license these new advanced reactors. And, and, I, and I will talk a little bit about what I think is some good news of the story. There's a tendency to always focus on the bad news. But to go to your, to your history lesson, you know, in the early days when the Atomic Energy Commission was still kicking around in, in Hyman Rickover's time, they, they created their first regulation, which was Part 50. That's the main licensing regime for the fleet that we currently operate. And it has been used, highly modified, along the way, but is the structure that we use right now. That is a, a two-step process. It incorporates, um, first, a construction license, and there has to be an analysis of environmental circumstances at the site required by the National Environmental Policy Act. It uses MET data towers to get uh, information about the uh, meteorological data. A lot, a lot of data goes into that. That after that application is reviewed, there's an opportunity for a public hearing, uh, a mandatory public hearing. Once that process has gone through, the owner of the site can go in and build the plant, and then they would go in for a separate, separate operating, um, yeah, operating license that would also be subject to a public hearing. So we talk about that as a two-step licensing process. That worked relatively well uh, up until Three Mile Island. After Three Mile Island, there were a number of new requirements that were put in. There was also a burgeoning anti-nuclear movement at that point, and that resulted in a number of those um, licensing actions being slowed down. Uh, interventions were taken, sort of a dragging out of the time period to get those plants built, and some ultimately went bankrupt. Uh, Seabrook Station in New Hampshire, which ultimately operated, went bankrupt but they were able to get it constructed. Uh, others ultimately never, never got to the end. In, in the 90s, Congress said, you know, we really think there needs to be a new process uh, that was deemed uh, Part 52, which they call a one-step licensing process. It's a little bit of a misnomer. What it does is it uses a design certification. So you pre-certify the design. You have an early site permit, so you're effectively using the early site permit. And you marry the two of those with a combined construction and operating license that there is one application and potential for one here. Um, all of the reactors we have uh, were licensed under Part 50, except the new Vogel unit, which is owned by Southern Company down in Georgia, Vogel 3 and 4, those were licensed under Part 52. So they did an early site permit. They used a reference design of the AP1000, and they applied for that one process. Now, Part 52 has a valid validation process at the end called ITACS. It's an integrated testing program. Don't ask me what the acronym is. I forget. But there were a lot of doubts about that when I was a commissioner. Nonetheless, Southern, I think, in the industry worked through that very well. So the process has been demonstrated at works. Congress, uh, in, in, uh, in the uh, NEMA Act, said, we want you to come up with a new process, Part 53, for this wave of advanced reactors. And I and others, uh, folks from ANS, have been working with the NRC for about three or four years to, to, to get there. Um, there have been a lot of questions. I think industry is pretty united in saying that that particular version that the NRC staff has come up with isn't really what is needed. Um, so <clears throat> there is a paper in front of the NRC commission right now as to what to do with Part 52. I think we'll see something coming out of the commission um, in the coming months. Now, don't get too far on that line of thought. Okay, because we're going to come back there. to that. Mm -hmm. I have there. one more history lesson, or history question, okay. to, to go through. And this, Craig, is for you. Okay. Jeff mentioned, and I mentioned the question, this, um, I think it was in the early, 1995, in the mid-90s, the um, establishment of the, CO, the combined operation license and early site mm -hmm. permit process. And that didn't really lead to anything until the mid-2000s that gave rise to the so-called, what was then called the, the nuclear renaissance. And there were like 30 reactor applications that went to, I think just under 30 right. applications. It was 18 applications for 32 reactors. Yeah. Um, that went to the NRC. Of those, four reactors sort of started to go forward. Of those, 
only two, well, one was completed, presumably two. Right. Um, what happened? Like, why did that reform that, had, that came with so much fanfare ultimately, I don't want to say, it failed in the time frame that it was expected to succeed in. Right. Uh, so a couple of things, right? I think that that you know the Part 52 licensing process was created to address what was seen as the, the the biggest challenge at the time, and it was based off of previous experience. That is, a utility determines that they're going to build a nuclear plant. They go forward with the construction of that plant. Then they have to go back to NRC for an operating license, and at that point, you know, there's an opportunity for interveners to come in and 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 um, and and delay the process. And and as a result of that, we had a couple of plants that that were built but were never you know never operated or maybe operated only for a short period of time. Um, so you know, that's that was the birth of Part 52. Now the question is, you know, what happened to the 32 reactors? Um, and I think that you have to look at it as it was a it was a there were there were multivariate causes. Probably the largest single cause was the um, that really came out of nowhere the, the the fracking revolution, and and you know you combine that with um, with low incremental power demand growth, and um, it gave utilities an opportunity to patch whatever they needed to patch with low-cost natural gas and, um, and really didn't need to be thinking about building big, new, baseload you know, power sources, right? And, of course, you had the, you had the financial crisis. And, and it's not to say that Fukushima didn't play a role but it, because I think it did. But I think if you look at it economically, Fukushima probably played less of a role than everyone assumes. Um, and, uh, and, and again, I think, you know, what we're looking at now, you know, that we were talking about building 32 airports, right? Now with the new technology, we're thinking about it like airplanes, not airports, where, um, you know, airports are, are sometimes first of a kind, only of a kind, very large scale construction projects, um, they can they they generally you know all of those sorts of projects generally go over budget generally go behind you know behind schedule and and nuclear is no exception there so i think a lot of that was probably not you know some of that was unique to nuclear but some of that is just unique to the way to the challenges in the united states at that time of building big new things yeah i i, I just just i i completely agree with that analysis i mean when i talk to utility ceos at that point with $4 natural gas and the ability to build a simple cycle or combined cycle at a fraction of what you could build a nuclear power plant for those days, no utility CEO was going to go to their board of directors or up to Wall Street and try to explain, well, instead of, instead of taking advantage of this really low-cost gas, I'm going to build an asset that's going to operate for 80 years and going to cost a whole lot more. And it was an economic decision. Right. Let me play devil's advocate just for a moment because um, I think it's a question that people might have. Yes, on the natural gas and the fracking, but those aren't why Vogel took a long time and cost a lot of money. Yeah, but that wasn't the question you asked. No, no. <laughs> but um, well, it's implicitly the question I asked because it took a long time and cost a lot of money. Here, here, let, let me be more direct. Um, I have argued and would argue and will continue to argue that there are certain inefficiencies within the regulatory and policy system that artificially increase the cost of nuclear power. And in the Energy Policy Act of 2005, while it did attempt to subsidize a small number of reactors forward, it didn't address any of those underlying things. And that's, um, there was an attempt to do that with the COL and ES, uh, early site permit process, but you still had underlying a nuclear regulatory commission that takes too long and costs too much, you still have a Department of Energy that gets too involved in the business side of nuclear, and you still have other things. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would, how do we address those? I would take those in two. I would take okay. those in two buckets, as, as you put it. And, and the first one is, you know, the construction itself, and it did take a long time. I worked for the Shaw Group, who was responsible for building it part of the time, and and there were tons of lessons that could be learned. But I think one of the things that, you, that one has to keep in mind is we, as a country, haven't built large infrastructure projects writ large, Mm -hmm. very much. I mean, there are some oil and gas facilities that have been built down in the Gulf. But if you look at the Big Dig, you look at the Tappan Zee Bridge, you look at Vogel, all of those had challenges because billion-dollar 
projects are really hard to do. So that's part of it. Now you you focused on the on the regulatory side, and there is there is a role there. I remember when we were first putting in the rebar at Vogel, right? The ba the base mat for the mm -hmm. for the reactor, and Westinghouse had gone through a uh, the COL process, they had their certified design with the NRC, and in construction, you use a different set of principles than you do in manufacturing. So Westinghouse was an NSSS supplier, nuclear steam system supply, everything is very precise in that system. Well, rebar three feet down in the hole isn't. A constructor will say, we're going to put that rebar, you know, eight, ten, ten inches on center, plus or minus half an inch. And that's fine, you're buried under three feet of concrete, mm -hmm. no problem. The NRC inspectors, who know how to inspect mm -hmm. NSSS systems, are measuring the distance between the rebar to make sure it meets the design. No safety value whatsoever. So what did Chaw have to do? Well, they had to get folks with two-by-fours with scalloped pieces and, and basically take a, a, a sledgehammer and try to straighten that rebar so that they can meet the NRC requirements. Mm -hmm totally non-risk informed. I think the agency is moving to try to fix some of that in, in some changes they've made. But that did occur along the way. So, you know, a lot of responsibility on the part of the constructor and, and the folks who put it together. There were some areas where the agency had gaps too. Very good. Um, let's give the people what they want and talk about the future. Um, so, I, but I can't do it without looking at the past a little bit. Going back to the original premise, Rickover and the Navy built that original reactor and the subsequent power reactors in very short time periods, and they hadn't built them at all before that, much less not for a long time. So there was something about the system then that, gave, that, that allowed these things to be built at least efficiently, and I suspect fairly economically, to Vogel now. And I'm, not, I, I'm definitely not blaming Southern or, or anyone in, in, in industry. Um, I'm just saying it's a fact of the matter that over that time, there's something that happened that made things take longer and cost more. Um, let's talk through what, what, what are some of those challenges. And then the next question is going to be, what do we do to change? And then we'll move into a brief conversation about what do we need to do for new technologies so that they have a chance. Mm -hmm. So what are the challenges? Well, I mean, let me... Um at the risk of being a little controversial here, what I'd say, you know, the difference between the time of Rickover and today is that, um, you know, a CEO of any company back then, the first thing he or she would have done <clears throat> would be to call his engineering department and say, hey, can we do this? Is this possible? And, and today what they do is they, they, no offense, Jeff, they call a lawyer and they say, what's my exposure here, <laughs> right? So, so I think there, was a, there, there is a difference in mindset between then and now that um, we can certainly argue that, that that heyday in the 50s and 60s was, was better and we were doing things faster. The question is, can we ever, you know, how do we go back to that time? And I think most of that is not specific to nuclear, but it's more, it's more general to the way that we, that we build large projects now. But again, I think the, what the, the difference now you're seeing is a lot of these new designs are smaller, are modular, are designed to be built into a factory. As I said before, we're not building airports anymore. We're trying to build airplanes in a, in a, you know, with factory quality control. And I think that can change some of the, the, the economic challenges that we saw the last go around. Yeah, I, let me layer on top of that. I mean, the, the, to going back to the Rickover days, you would have a, a single design of an attack uh, submarine or, or a um, sub submarine, you know, missile sub, and you'd replicate that 12, 15 times, and then maybe you'd have a different design. Now, they may make little iterations along the way, but generally uh, the hull and propulsion systems stay pretty well the same in, in, in any, any given class. You know, you look at the, f the current fleet of nuclear reactors, you know, the current commercial the current commercial fleet of nuclear reactors and and they're all pretty much different right I mean you have two on site that are the same but from site to site they change quite a bit and that and that is a transitional issue I think Congress looking forward you know wants the NRC along your lines to be able to say okay we're going to review that design as long as the vendors of these uh, new designs who will manufacture a lot of that in a factory setting as long as they can have some 
consistency of approach for replicating that design in multiple sites, can we really take advantage of speeding up the system so we can replicate that in the way that the Navy used to do it? Do you think that that's possible? Do you think that, that, that we can get, that policy can get there? I, it's going to be creaky. I mean, the thing you have to remember is the, the NRC is an agency which is really focused on, you know, we've got to make sure we're doing things safely. And they get a whole lot of criticism if they, from some approaches if they go uh, too fast in, in some of that. I will say as a former commissioner, you know, the biggest pen pal that the NRC has had in the last 20 years is, is Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts, who, who tries to keep the agency, he has a certain vision for how the, the agency should con conduct itself, and that isn't necessarily a vision built on speed. Um, I think the processes that the NRC has right now, and this goes to the punchline I had before, under Part 50 and Part 52, will be used to license these future reactors. I think in discussions I've had with senior folks at the agency, I think they do recognize that once they've licensed that design, future designs that are the same really ought to have a, a relatively light regulatory approach. I think the issue, and I don't want to get too far ahead of where you want us, want us to go, is there is an opportunity to do even better. And I think that was the vision of folks in Congress under Part 53. We're not there yet. So I would say I, I think it can be done. I, I, and I agree with Jeff that it would be creaky. It, but it can only be done if, if the NRC opens its aperture just a little bit. If you go back and you look at history, the original Atomic Energy Act language about how the U.S. will use nuclear energy, it'll be, you know, promote the, the common welfare and prosperity and the, and the common defense, right, help, you know, it was, it was very sort of sweeping in the, in the early 1950s. It was kind of in keeping with Eisenhower's Adams for Peace initiative. Um, but then you, you, know, you go later to the, the point at which the AEC was sort of split up and, and NRC came to you know, the, the, the moniker of today is reasonable assurance of adequate protection of public safety and health, which is eminently, eminently reasonable. And, and that's what's enshrined in the Atomic <clears throat> Energy Act. And that's, yes, exactly. But I think that, that you know, the, the focus is kind of, if you, if you were to look at it sort of practically, the focus is, you know, Preventing nuclear incidents or accidents, which you know is is um, um, an appropriate function, but it doesn't necessarily consider the the you know the broader benefits of the technology in that calculation. It's sort of very specific to you know sort of stopping bad things from happening. Um, so I think that um, that that having the broader aperture about the I mean. One thing we know is when the lights go out, people die, right? We've seen that in, in, um, uh, in Texas as part of the, the, the polar vortex blackout they had a couple of years ago. I mean, there is a cost associated with the, this, and there are benefits to having a resilient grid, a resilient grid that prevents those sort of incidents, and nuclear really can be the, is really the only technology we have today that can kind of be a cornerstone of a reliable <clears throat> resilient grid. So I think I think if if we begin to sort of step back and say, okay, you know, what are we we're, we're regulating toward the maximum benefit of public health and safety? Um, I think I think the NRC can get there. I think I think that we're we're seeing we're seeing that now. I think in the most recent um, uh, co regulatory information conference that NRC had, I, th I think you saw commissioners acknowledging that that point, and I think that, um, I, you know, I think that's a good thing. Part, part of the challenge <clears throat> of the NRC staff, and go back to the point Craig made, the, the um, you know, enshrined in the surrounding the NRC and the Atomic Energy Act is the notion that the agency shall enable these technologies as long as they're determined to be safe. The standard which is used to evaluate that safety is reasonable assurance of adequate protection of public health and safety. It's not absolute protection. And when I was a commissioner, and I had a, a fellow commissioner who was a Democrat, Ed McGaffigan, you know, he and I would both really push the NRC staff because th there is a tendency, and it is, you know, there are wonderful people up there. They are well trained. They are very thoughtful. They're absolutely dedicated. But there's, a, but they're engineers, and there's this tendency of, well, I did it this way, but you know, I could do it just a little bit better. And so there is this sort of ratcheting tendency. It's human nature, and that's not really what the Atomic Energy Act. Expect it. It's you draw a line. This is what we're expecting for protection, public health, and safety. And you don't have to keep 
upping the ante as days and years go by. And I think that's, that's a tension. And I think that's one of the challenges we've got right now. How, how do we overcome that? Well, I think there are, there are several ways. I mean, clearly, Congress has a role. In, in oversight, both the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee and the Energy and Commerce Committee, which are the two committees of oversight, um, they have a function to play in making sure the, that that balance is there. Um, I think it is signals sent in legislation, and there have been some recent uh, legislation that's been put in uh, the Advance Act by the by the, the chairman and ranking member of uh, both Environment and Public Works and Energy Commerce Committee that would send some of those signals to the NRC. I know that there are other pieces out there that folks either have uh, members have put in or are thinking about putting in. So I think there's some different signals can be sent through legislation as to the agency's got to be, re, be uh, rebalanced a bit more. I think there's also, I think we sort of need to, I think Congress and, and frankly the president need to step back and look at sort of what do we expect for the future. Um, when I was, now I, I'm going to preface this by saying I know all five of the commissioners. I think they're all terrific people. They're people I know very, very well. Having said that, I think one of the issues we have right now is when I was a commissioner, we always had at least one PhD on the commission. Um, whether it was a former university professor, we had Nils Diaz, uh, Dick Meserve, we had people who, who really understood sort of the, the physics. We had people who had um, more industry experience, albeit uh, in, in a different way. Um, right now we have a, a significant component of very well qualified uh, former congressional staff, and then David Wright, who's a former head of the, of the uh, South Carolina PUC. But there's a little bit of lack of diversity in, in those experiences. And I think that the commission values from having diversity you know, throughout it. The other layer is, I think, the senior management of the agency right now, much of it was grown in-house. And when I was a commissioner, we still had people that we brought in from, whether it was from the Department of Energy, from industry, or others, who had a degree of diversity about how the agency could be run. Um, the NRC has done a lot more growing of its own folks, and I think there is a value of, of Congress encouraging the agency, maybe requiring the agency, to be more diverse in, the, in their thinking and come up with some new innovative approaches to meet the expectation of how these reactors will be regulated in the future. Let's... Let's turn our attention now to those f future reactors. Um, you both talked about Part 50 and Part 52 and Part 53. Just to remind everyone, Part 50 was the original regulatory regime. Two-step. Two-step, then Part 52 attempted to at least, not technically, but te tried to make it a, a more seamless single-step process, though not really a single-step. Then 53 was is an ongoing effort to make the NRC more open to new technologies. Because of the failure, not failure, because of the slowness of developing 53, we've seen some people talk about going back to the original process of 50. And 52 um, has only been used successfully once. So let's talk about why that, like, like what is it about the NRC that makes it difficult for new Reactors. It feel, if you're an outside observer, it seems like it's clunky and difficult and expensive to bring a new technology to the marketplace to get it through that NRC process. I was wondering, um, sort of, because we've had large light water reactors, it used to be the case. Is it still the case that NRC is very light water centric? Just talk through a little, a couple of the challenges, maybe price structure. Craig, that might be something you can talk about. Um, what are some of the key challenges to new reactors? And well, let's start with that. What are some key challenges? Well, I'm going to I'm going to key off of Jeff what you just talked about in terms of of you know improving the um, you know improving the operational heft of the NRC, bringing in people from the outside, being able to bring in senior people, pay them what they need to be paid to be there. Um, you know, having a diverse commission, having technical you know strong technological experience, because having those people on the commission, you know, uh, allows them to recognize when something seems like a political problem, but it's not a technical problem. They can you know they can speak with a clear voice on that. I think that's really I think that's really important. Um, you know, I don't 
think that we could ever expect that, that the NRC will be lightning fast. But I do think that, I mean, you're, you're going to see some of the first movers in advanced reactors use the Part 50 and the Part 52 process with exemptions to bring their designs through, right? Those processes were, were both designed with light water reactors in mind. And, and you know, in some cases, they, they'll be applied to non-light water designs. Um, I think Part 53 uh, uh, just kind of got caught up in, in the entropy a little bit. I think you know, it was brand new. People didn't know quite how to bound it. I mean, some of it was cut and paste from earlier, uh, from earlier regulatory structures. But I think there's a lot of unknown. There's a lot of fear and, um, about, about doing something new. And, um, and so I think the first ones are probably going to take some period of time. Uh, but Part 53, um, I think we have to also recognize that, that we've learned a lot in nuclear since the time those first regulatory you know, procedures were developed. And some of the designs today have no moving parts, right? They look very different, much simpler. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the X Energy's uh, um, pebble bed design is basically like a giant gumball machine. It drops a gumball in at the top every 73 seconds and cycles one out. And um, uh, they're much simpler than the old designs. And I think somewhere, you know, trying to adapt an old regulatory structure where, um, you know, the, the, the challenges, the, the technical challenges were different to a new one. I think that's kind of where we are now. And I'm, I'm hoping we can get over it and, and, and start, you know, walking instead of crawling. Yeah, and I've been in a lot of, a lot of discussions with advanced reactor vendors. And, you know, Part 50 and Part 52 were designed as late water processes. Having said that, to get there, as, as Craig mentioned, use exemptions. You say certain portions of those do not apply to our reactor designs. And in the engagement that the vendors have been having with the NRC, that actually has gone in a very constructive way, where there has been agreement between the NRC staff and the vendors. Yeah, these portions of Part 50 or Part 52 do not apply. And, that, and that's very helpful. The other thing to get into detail, um, you know, there, there are opportunities to have various uh, intermediate documents, white papers. Um, you can have various uh, position papers on are there elements of the design, uh, they call them topical reports, that the agency can review ahead of time and make a determination so that when they put, put in their application, that, that has been resolved. Um, New Scale did that with their design for a number of topic reports. Others are doing that as well. I think that's going to help move the process uh, along. So to go back to my, my punchline comment, I do think Part 50 and 52, and I think there needs to be optionality, by the way. I think the, the vendors should have an op option to choose one of those two approaches. I think that will give us the basis to get the current crop of, of reactors, uh, of new reactors licensed. The issue with Part 53 was it was something new, and there was a hard timeline, 2027, later 2024, to get it done. And I think the challenge the NRC staff was having was threefold. Um, number one, you know, did they have sufficient understanding and knowledge of, of the designs? And, and they're new, so there was, they were tending to be overly conservative on their approach. Um, the second one is when faced with you know, trying to be creative and trying to meet a deadline, the agency, in meeting the deadline, is generally going to take stuff that they have off the shelf. Uh, the third layer of problems was there is also, and we, we had this, we dealt with this when I was a commissioner, we were, we were reviewing Part 52. I mean, there were some things, uh, I think, on the NRC staff wish list that Part 53 was an opportunity to get that into the regulation rather than guidance, and I think the agency overstepped. And so the end result was we have a document, a proposed document that's gone to the commission, which is... 11 or 1,200 pages. It's longer than parts 15 and 52. Um, it's excessive. And, and, and it's not going to be, I think, what Congress, in its vision in NEMA, expected out of what would be a future licensing regime for these advanced reactors. It doesn't hit the mark. Very good. Um, I think we've established a good basis to, to get into some specific questions from the audience. Before, before we do that, I want to do two things. One, um, do either of you have any given the conversation, any sort of things that you didn't mention that you would like to mention? No, let's get into it. No. Then second, I'm going to just throw some crazy ideas out there. 
We don't need to get into deep detail on it. You probably will say, no, Spencer, that's the most insane thing I ever heard in my life. But I'm going to throw them out there anyway, some regulatory reforms that might be more radical in nature. Um, one is, first let me ask, if the NRC didn't exist, could Westinghouse and Shaw go out and build a reactor that was safe? Yeah, definitely, definitely. But the question is, would it have the social license to be no, installed? No, we'll but, get to that. I'm just asking, could they? But if you have a, I think if you have, uh, well, let, let me let me let me put it this way: um, the, the the men and women of the nuclear industry um, have as much of an interest in safety as the average person does, right? A lot of those people live near nuclear plants, and so the last thing they want. Is is you know any kind of nuclear incident? So I think that and, and again we're dealing in the in in, in a purely conceptual this framework here, right? Yes, uh, no judgment and brainstorming, but uh, um, but I think that that there is no question. I mean, the first nuclear plant, you know, was uh, it, it, I mean, if you look at uh, Shippingsport, right? It's it was built. I, I would say with with. It, at the most, kind of an ad hoc regulatory structure as yeah. it was put together. Well, it, 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 you know, at the end of the day, you know, the owner and operator of that plant, whether it is a utility or some other, other industrial group, and, and you made a comment about run to the lawyers, I mean, they're going to want to make sure that they protect their shareholders uh, and that the design that, they, that they're going to buy is going to be safe. It's no different than, you know, Dow decides to go and buy, you know, a, a new uh, refinery. They want to make sure that that's safe because they don't want the legal consequences if there were an accident. So, so as an intellectual effort, yeah. So why not? Why, why shouldn't we just abolish the NRC then? Well, because I, I I agree and with replace the, it with something that's more appropriate. Because you're gonna you're gonna waste too much time doing that, I think. And, and I don't think that the NRC is broken. I, I think the NRC is. You know, I mean, call it a minor sprain, right? But I think, it, you know, there is an opportunity with the people and the organization in place. It's not going to take as, as, you know, take longer than everybody wants. But I think there is an opportunity to okay. get to the end game of, of licensing and commercializing a new generation of technology to be ready for commercial scale up in the 2030 time frame. I, I think they can do it. Now, what does that take, right? I mean, you, met, you may, mentioned the point before, it takes consistent oversight, right? If, if, if NRC is only getting congressional input from people that are questioning their every action, it's going to make them more risk averse. You know, are there, you know, how many members of Congress are out there cheering the NRC on saying, listen, we need you to do this because, you know, we need to meet our energy and environmental objectives in the long term. You know, you need to move more quickly. So reinforcement, I think, is important. People are important. Um, and, and culture is important. Um, yeah, Jack, Jack, I think you've been asking us a lot of questions about history. And, and the history is the guide here. The, the NRC serves a vital purpose in making sure that the public... I mean, there's a group of people in the United States who are a four-square behind nuclear energy and who would not be opposed to the notion of getting rid of the NRC. But there's probably the middle cohort... Mm -hmm. which is a majority who are supportive of nuclear power but, but are comforted by the fact that there's an independent regulator making sure that, the, that it's being checked. Despite all the comments made earlier, the NRC is, is a very solid and good agency, and, and it has a good history. The fleet, the NRC deserves credit for the fact that the current fleet is operating at, 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 at the level it does, and there's a perception that it's being operated very safely. Um, I think the commission... I think the senior staff are doing a good job managing the current fleet of plants. The comments that I was making uh, about changes that need to be made really are looking in a more anticipatory way toward what is that future going to be. And I think in order for the NRC to meet the challenge of this tremendous series of new advanced reactor technologies out of there uh, that are out there, there needs to be some innovative thinking and, and a refresh on how are we going to do this as an agency? And I think the agency needs a broader bucket of people in order to accomplish that. Now, I'm not the first one that's ever suggested abolishing the NRC, just so folks know. Yes. I'm just trying to put it out there so you know. Um, now, this no, is no, you, you, you are, you are fo fostering an intellectual form. <laughs> 
I mean, heritage has been long known for of yeah. asking those kind of hard questions. No, it's a really valid question. Um, now, here's one that I do personally think is more is interesting and doable, maybe. That um, I know we have the current regime under which nuclear exists. It would be interesting to me if there was a totally alternative pathway that provided a far lighter regulatory touch, but you took on a full liability for building the reactor. So in other words, um, you forego Price-Anderson, you forego all of that. Um, what you have to get is you have to be insured. You have to find your own liability insurance. And in exchange for that, you can go build something, and we will have some high level of safety standard, but you go build what you want to build. I mean, I think it's an... I think it's an interesting concept that you raise because, you know, the, the challenge here, you know, the larger issue, the sort of the invisible force at play here is, is ultimately is public fear of radiation, right? And, and that, drives, that drives liability. When we know uh, that, um, you know, accidents with public health consequences are exceedingly rare, and if you were to look at it from an actuarial standpoint, you know, it might be, it might be a good bet. Um, I think where you run into where you run into headwinds is is in the public acceptance of it because I still think that there needs to be um, a perception that um, that somebody is watching out that doesn't have a commercial interest making sure things are safe or else it's just going to be difficult to get the the you know the buy-in of of you know and owners, suppliers, manufacturers, communities, governments to make it happen. But I don't know, Jeff, what do you think? Uh, well, there's sort of two things, I think, that would be at play in your challenging idea. The, the first one is the insurance industry. The insurance industry that supplies insurance for the nuclear program relies in part on looking at what the NRC has done to validate their willingness to insure some of these folks. So in the absence of having an independent regulator, I think you'd have a harder time getting an insurance industry that would want to that would want to finance these things. I, I don't know. I'm not an insurance. I didn't guy, say in the absence of the independent regulator as a alternative to that process. Yeah. But anyway. Uh, but anyway, I, the point yeah. being, I, I I think there might be an issue there with insurance. The other one is, I mean, I cut my teeth, you know, in D.C. on nuclear in 1986 when Seabrook Station Nuclear Power Plant, in my home state, was being licensed, and there were thousands of people who were protesting that site. Now, fortunately, the NRC granted the license, and that is an incredibly important asset for my home state. But the fact is, I think if you didn't have that level of independent regulation, there are locations around this country, which right now I think are willing to accept a nuclear power plant, that might say, I'm just not comfortable that you don't have someone independent looking at this and evaluating whether it's safe for my, my hometown. Okay. Not, I did say that there would be some level of it, but let's move on. I have one last one to ask. You've looked at plenty of uh, applications for new reactors. Um, you don't. You used to work at the NRC. You don't anymore. Right. One. I would argue one of the uh, something that would benefit everyone is to bring competition to the NRC. What What do you think of? creating a process that allows firms to review permit applications and other sort of the administrative, for lack of a better word, piece of the process. doesn't mean the NRC won't do it, yeah. just that they have some competition so that they, you know, just so that, you know, is it possible? And then is it, it's probably not feasible, but anyway, what do you think of that? Well, it's an interesting question. You've given me sort of a Hobson's choice here, right? Because on the one hand, a lot of the work I do is in front of the commission, working with the commissioners, and hence why I, I think it's important to have good relations. On the other hand, you, you're giving me a sense of my partners. You know, I could form an enterprise that would could potentially raise general amount of revenue uh, for my firm. So that's a, that's a difficult <laughs> question to answer. I, competition is a good thing. I want to finish this up with a little bit of a different answer. One of the things I think is, has changed, and this is where I think there's, there is some pressure on the NRC, and that is they have other international counterparts, notably the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, which today is licensed in the same set of reactors that the NRC is, as is the Office of Nuclear Regulation in the UK. 
And they do things differently there, uh, quite differently. Rather than having a very detailed requirement of all, all the questions you're going to have, our Canadian and UK friends say, you need to come in, give me the information to demonstrate that you think your reactor is safe. I'll review it and make a determination whether I agree with you or not. That process, in some ways, can be more efficient uh, and, and, and faster than the NRC approach. Now, there are pluses and minuses with both. But I do think now that the same set of reactors are being reviewed by all three uh, regulators, there is a lot more crosstalk between, you know, are there better ways of are doing this more efficiently? And perhaps there may be an opportunity to say, you know, maybe the way the NRC is, has been doing things isn't 100% right. Maybe there are things that we can learn from the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission or from ONR to make that process work a lot faster. Very good. Now, I was a horrible moderator. I went way over. Um, so we are going to do uh, audience Q&A, and um, we'll get through as many as we can, and we might go over a minute or two. So I know that that's irritating to folks, but at least I acknowledge I'm going to go over a minute or two. Let's start right here, this gentleman. Uh, Tom, uh, here we have a microphone. Oh, no, because we're recording. Benefit of our people. Tom, Tom Pyle with the Institute for Energy Research. And I wrote it down so that I could try to be concise because I knew you'd go over. Is the NRC constrained by Congress from reforming itself in order to allow for the opportunity to innovate in the nuclear power generation space? Second part, absent the current regulatory regime, would nuclear or rather what types of nuclear generation power generation or technologies would be economical without subsidies or loan guarantees? Well, um, I, would start with the, I would start with the latter question. Um, there are significant incentives that, that have been put in ver with various things that have been identified. I think that there are some technologies out there right now, even in the absence of, of those that would continue to move forward. Um, the, the technology developers have been raising money in order to bring these forward. I think the, the incentives have helped move them faster and have provided some openings. But I, I, I don't think, I don't think um, all of it is the responsibility of those, of, of those funding programs. Uh, on, the, on the issue... Well, I, th I think um, if you look at the, at the companies that have been putting a lot of money in, TerraPower, X-Energy, both were funded with a significant amount of... Of, of private capital, um, given the project, uh, you know, they, they may, I think they're going to be moved a lot faster as a result of the Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program. Um, others, um, uh, like Oklo, um, you know, they have received significant private capital, and I think they were going to intend to move forward irrespective of whether they had federal funding or not. So I'll take a shot at it quickly. I think on the on the question of economic competitiveness, again, this is sort of a, you know, we're, we're dealing in the realm of the hypothetical here. But if we lived in a world where both the public policymakers and the financial community had a perfectly objective perception of the risks and, and every element of nuclear was developed with those risks in, you know, the, the perception of risks in mind, I think nuclear would be economically competitive today without any subsidies whatsoever. Um, but obviously, that's not the world, that's not the world that we live in. Uh, to, the, to the earlier question as to whether or not NRC has all of the authorities it needs to, to you know, conclude the regulatory process and, and, and you know, the licensing process. Um, I think for the most part they do, but I do think there are some things that, that, that can be improved upon in terms of, of broadening their ability to, as Jeff was talking about, bring in talent from the outside, kind of have a fresh wash of talent through the, through the agency, um, you know, hard to do in the current civil service system. But, um, but beyond that, I think it's, it is a function of, of improving the culture, having effective congressional oversight um, with, and, and consistent oversight. Uh, I, I think NRC has, for the most part, the tools that they need to do the job. Yeah, I, I do. I, there's one other thing I, I forgot to say, and that is the NRC is a fee-based agency. So the, there is additional cost layered on top of these advanced reactor developers getting their, their designs licensed. The, the fleet of plants that's currently operating didn't have to go through that 
prior to the, uh, the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act in 1990. So that's one where there's actually a, a layer of government costs that's put on top of these advanced reactor developers that could be lifted off. Uh, yes, over here. Thank you. Uh, Stephen Dolly with S&P Global Commodity Insights. I added our newsletter inside NRC. And uh, thanks, Jack, and thanks to Heritage for having the event. It was a very, uh, very thorough discussion. I wish we had a little more for time for questions, so I hope this doesn't sound too terse and prosecutorial, but just uh, I wanted to, <laughs> wanted to ask um, um, Jeff and Craig specifically, first of all, if you think we should abolish NRC, yes or no? No. And secondly, um, secondly whether you can name any U.S. nuclear power plant project uh, during the nuclear renaissance that, that didn't come to fruition about a decade ago or any other time that was canceled during the licensing process because of excessive NRC regulation or excessive NRC costs, even one. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, no, no, definitely not. Do I think that we should abolish the NRC? I think that, that, that there's a, a multi-variable question at play there, and it would be inappropriate to just say yes or no to that question. I know. And I'm giving you my answer because you put that on the table. I, I, think, that, I think that the current... Uh, the current approach to regulation and government policy as it relates to nuclear, getting back to Tom's question, distorts how nuclear would have organically developed in the marketplace absent those distortions. So we don't know what the answer to Tom's question is. And I think that the more interesting question is absent government policies and the regulatory approach, where would nuclear be? And would we have much would where would we, where would the industry and technology be? If we're able to compete in the free market, but that's not that's not that that's an that's an that's not the that's not a question that's relevant to what we're doing here because we are where we are. What are the sorts of reforms that can move nuclear forward? I, I, I would say and I'd have to go back to the history books to answer that. It's a, it's a fair question. I think that some of the cancellations that occurred post Three Mile Island, um, and there were of a number of them. I think the factors that went, you know one of the factors that went into those decisions. Were, were they going to be facing a process that could potentially bankrupt the company? I mean, people saw what happened at Seabrook. Public Service in New Hampshire went bankrupt because of, the, because of the drag out in getting that license. Now, that wasn't all the NRC's fault, but that's the way the process went. And I think that there were utilities that had uh, uh, projects in the pipeline that said, I'm not, going to put my, I'm not going to put my utility through it. I can't name you a specific one, but I'm certain we could figure out some. I would say that yeah. would be my, yeah. I don't know that I could point out any closure that was specifically related. I mean, there are all, it, you know, there are always multivariate causes to this, right? That are economic and financial and, and social. But you know, so I wouldn't point to anyone in particular. But what I will say is, don't don't underestimate, you know, the reg, you know, regulatory is kind of that invisible inflammation, right? That makes everything a little bit more expensive. It makes everything uh, take a little bit more time, and and you know it can definitely be a factor. But I don't think it was, you know, let, I don't think it's like the deciding factor. Let me let me jump in with one final thing. It's not just that. So Craig and I both make you know troop up to New York. We meet with lots of folks in the financial community, the community there and elsewhere. And when you meet with a bunch of financial analysts who are making investment decisions for private equity firms and other major financial institutions, is nuclear a place where I want to make a play? The first question they always ask is, what about the NRC and the regulatory structure? Can that be made to work? So that it is, this is an important discussion topic because it does heavily influence financial decisions on whether some of these plants are going to get built. So I w there are three things to consider. One, before this most recent nuclear renaissance, the one in two, 2000, mid-2000s. We know that there are roughly 100 reactor reactors that were in part of the NRC process that didn't go forward. We built roughly 100. There are another roughly 100 that were at some stage that were never finished. When I say no, they weren't necessarily started. Yeah. Um, conceptualized. We know that there were roughly 30, 32, um, that didn't go through. 
and we know we have what you just talked about, Jeff, that financial institutions ask these questions. So it's not how many that were in the process didn't go through because of the NRC. It's both that and how many were never submitted because of that. And th- these are all things that contribute to that, that situation. But, but I want to I end on a positive note. I mean, we meet, in, in my role, I meet with large industrial companies, folks that have nothing to do with power, who are thinking about using nuclear applications as a result of these very innovative and exciting technologies. There, are, there is an incredible amount of thinking right now of how can we decarbonize our energy production. It's not just about making electrons and electricity like it used to be. It's, I have a need for industrial grade heat. How can I use a high temperature gas reactor, molten salt reactor, one of the others to get there, get the heat I need to do the industrial process I need to have and do so in a way that's not generating carbon. That is much different than we were before and a very exciting place to be. I'm going to leave the carbon question out uh, for, for, for a different time and place. Um, but I recognize that that's something that people are concerned about. I want nuclear to be built for other reasons. Um, do we have any other questions? Yes, right here. I just had to say, I just had to clarify on that uh, point. Uh, Bill Walters, <laughs> University of Maryland, nuclear chemistry. Self-reform, I think, is impossible. We had a meeting some years ago and said, could we use new data in the calculation? And the answer was, no, no, no. We've got them persuaded that this is right. We can't dare open the chance, open up the idea to change it. I think I, think I would agree. It, it will require others in order to get lasting change. And, and whether that, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be legislation. It can be effective oversight and, and um, effective, effective leadership. But, um, you know, it won't come entirely from within, nor should it. Nor should it. Yep. Agreed. All right. I went seven minutes over. I apologize. Thank you all for coming today and participating. Thank you, Craig and Jeff, for participating. That was great. Let's give everyone a round of applause. Now, before we close, I want to remind, or I want to inform people, we have a new podcast at Heritage on energy issues. We've covered nuclear energy once in the past, and it will be a, 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 um, a future one in the, uh, next week. It's called The Power Hour, so download it. It's the best podcast. I think that uh, we're probably going to give Rogan a, a run for his money. We're waiting for our big Spotify contracts, and get in on the, on the ground floor. And thank you all very much for coming. I really appreciate it.